Imagine if basically here in the U.S., the Republicans took over both houses of Congress, the presidency, everything, and really you had no prominent Democratic voices in any corridors of power. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Corbell graduates make the world a better place, working toward global solutions in climate change, international security, economics, development, and diplomacy. 95% of Corbell students get jobs after graduation, and Corbell alumni are power players around the world. Learn more about the seven different degree programs offered at the University of Denver Joseph Corbell School of International Studies by visiting corbell.du.edu. My guest today, Nagar Mortazavi, is a journalist and host of the Iran podcast and senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. I reached out to her for this interview because it seems that lost in much commentary about the widening crisis in the Middle East is a nuanced understanding of what is driving Iranian decision-making. To understand any country's foreign policy, you need to understand domestic political dynamics. So today's conversation focuses on Iranian domestic politics and how that is shaping the regime's response to the Gaza crisis and U.S. strikes against Iran-backed groups in the region. I think you'll learn a lot from this conversation. I know I did. Speaking about learning from podcasts, you know, every so often here on Global Dispatches, I like to tell you about a podcast I think you'd enjoy. Disorder is a weekly podcast from Goalhanger Podcasts, the United Kingdom's number one independent podcasting company, and the makers of The Rest is Politics and The Rest is History. The Disorder Show, which is co-hosted by Middle East expert Jason Pack and former British ambassador Alex Hall Hall, tries to make sense of our mad, mad world. In recent episodes, they've heard the moving story of Evgenia Karamurza, democracy advocate and wife of Russian political opposition leader Vladimir Karamurza. They've spoken to Sir Jeffrey Adams, former British ambassador to Iran, about his time there, In their most recent episode, they talked to Miles Taylor, author of the famous anonymous New York Times op-ed, I Am Part of the Resistance Inside the Trump Administration, about the next threat facing democracy, artificial intelligence. Search for Disorder wherever you get podcasts or follow the links in the show notes. Now here is my conversation with Nagar Mortazavi.
So, Nagar, I'm a firm believer in the idea that a country's foreign policy can often be best understood through the lens of domestic politics. That is, domestic political pressures often shapes foreign policy. So before we discuss Iran's response to the Gaza war, I'm keen to get a sense from you. What were some of the key debates, trends and pressures that were driving Iranian politics prior to this current crisis? Well, There isn't much debate within the political structure elite, essentially because the Iranian hardliners, the conservatives, one side of the political structure have consolidated power recently. So a few years ago, they took over the parliament from the more moderate faction. They took over the presidency again from a fairly moderate president. And so they have essentially consolidated in most corners of power, and they were able to sideline and isolate the more moderate and reformist voices by either disqualifying them from running in elections or banning them. And basically, we don't hear too much from that side of the Iranian political structure, which is the reformists and the moderates, at least in the corridors of power where they're no longer present. But nevertheless, we do hear an internal discussion in the country, as we have in the past few years, essentially questioning and challenging Iran's regional policy. Is it really worth the animosity with Israel, with the United States, the sort of full support for the so-called axis of resistance and all of that? But nevertheless, the policy of the state remains the same as it has been, and we don't hear too much discussion or arguments in the corridors of power. So I would say there is sort of a unison support for whatever foreign and regional policy there is that we're seeing. That's interesting, because there's often this focus on intra- elite rivalry in Iran between the so-called hardliners and the more moderate or reformist camps. But you're saying that the moderate reformist camps have just been so substantially sidelined over the last few years that their influence is virtually like nil at this point. Imagine if basically here in the U.S. the Republicans took over both houses of Congress, the presidency, everything, and really you had no prominent Democratic voices in any corridors of power. Now, the moderates and the reformers are still vocal in some media spheres, online, in the social media as much as they can, but just in the corridors of power, we're not hearing or seeing much resistance to this policy of the state, which is a support for the so-called axis of resistance and essentially entering or inserting themselves into Israel-Hamas war from one side of the conflict. So hardliners have consolidated power in Iran. I'm curious to learn from you how you would characterize that faction's approach to the crisis thus far. Well, the hardliners essentially see this conflict as they have before, again, a continuation of Iran's regional policy on one side being Israel and its biggest supporter, the United States, and by extension, other Western countries. And then on the other side, the so-called axis of resistance, as they consider themselves Iran and other state and non-state actors, essentially this loose coalition of allies who are resisting Israel's presence in the region who are resisting 
U.S. presence in the region? Would they consider interference in the Middle East, imperialism, or just basically U.S. military interventions that they see themselves resisting to? This includes the Houthis in Yemen, most of Shia militias in Iraq, Hezbollah in Lebanon, obviously Syria, the Bashar Assad regime, and Hamas in Palestine. So they have approached this conflict carefully, I would say, in a calculated way, because they also simultaneously, the Iranians don't want direct military confrontation with Israel for themselves. They don't want direct military confrontation with the United States. So they have been careful and calculated in how they enter this conflict without really entering a conflict. But the kind of support that they've provided to these non-state actors and the militia who have been engaging in the conflict of Houthis in the Red Sea, obviously Hamas itself in Gaza, and then Hezbollah in the Northern Front with Israel, and the Iraqi militia in Iraq are going against the U.S. and its coalition forces. You characterized Iran's response as far as pretty careful and calculated. I know you don't like to use the word proxies to define the axis of resistance, including the group that carried out an attack that killed three U.S. service members in Jordan. Can you describe the dynamics of that attack, Iran's response to that attack as well, which I thought was kind of revealing? I think that attack, and later I saw reports from the U.S. side explaining exactly what happened. There was a friendly drone returning to that base on the U.S. side. And at the same time, this um, hostile drone was getting and it confused the base. And essentially, that seems to be the underlying reason why that drone wasn't intercepted. So the militias, the same militias had been launching drones towards U.S. forces and the coalition forces for a while with no casualties. And all of a sudden, I think this one time at work, and then immediately after, I think, Tehran realized that, okay, this was one step too far. And we need to have a de-escalatory posture, what I call it, the public statements they put out, reiterating, first of all, saying they have nothing to do with that attack, trying to distance themselves, as they did with the October 7th attack in Hamas. And then also, essentially pressuring that Iraqi militia to put out a statement declaring that they're going to stop their attacks on the U.S. I think both of those were sort of a escalatory posture from Tehran, not necessarily suggesting that they're going to completely remove themselves from the conflict, but essentially realizing that that was one step too far. And then on the U.S. side, I think the response we saw from the U.S., was sort of similar. The Biden administration obviously was under a lot of pressure in Washington to respond, even go inside Iranian borders and attack Iran, as the Republicans some call it, hit the snake and cut the snake's head or hit him inside where it hurts. But I think they realized that attacking Iran inside Iranian soil is a major red line, is going to be seen by Tehran as a very serious declaration of war and is going to be a major escalation. So they refrained from that. And we saw the retaliations only happening in Iraq and Syria on either militias that are supported by Iran or Iranian bases. And 
even I think the way that retaliation happened with the U.S. telegramming a few days before that we're going to respond, we're going to respond. They were essentially sending a message that if you want to get out of the way, now is your chance to sort of even reduce the casualty or the impact of the retaliations while still launching and showing that force of the American power with the bombers flying out of continental U.S. and the many, many dozens of targets being hit and also with public statements out by U.S. by senior U.S. officials saying that these attacks are going to continue. So I think both sides realize that that moment after the attack in Jordan could become a turning point. But at the same time, I think both sides moved in a calculated way. I still see it as an escalation. I think what we've seen since October 7th has been nothing but escalation. But I think they try to limit it and move in a calculated way that doesn't blow up and, you know, start that third world war, as some are referring to it, or the next big Middle East war. You make a point that I've seen made numerous times that basically both Iran and the United States, they don't want a war. They don't want direct conflict with each other. But I've not heard a really good explanation. I'd love to learn from you, what does Iran, the regime, affirmatively want? What are they seeking to gain from this crisis? What outcomes are they pursuing? Well, I think we have to maybe caveat that or or add some nuance that we are already seeing the war. This is the war. This is the big Middle East war. I mean, it's already spread to multiple theaters. It's happening in Gaza between Israel, Hamas, and the Northern Front, Israel, Hezbollah. It's expanded to Iraq with the militias against the U.S. That had already been ongoing, but it's just escalated more in Syria, where the shadow war between Iran and Israel had been happening in the Red Sea, where the Houthis have inserted themselves into a war. So this really is, already a regional conflict. But I think Tehran and Washington, Iran and the United States, have both trying to prevent precisely is direct military confrontation between the two. So essentially, Iran does not want a direct military confrontation with Israel, obviously, the region's most powerful army, and also with the United States, the world's most powerful army for obvious reasons. But nevertheless, they are interested in this asymmetric, non-conventional proxy war, essentially, as we call it. I don't like to refer to those forces as proxies, but it really is a proxy war the way Tehran has been involved in it so that they don't have to have sort of this direct military confrontation with these two major armies that I mentioned. But nevertheless, they can raise the cost for the Israelis and by extension for the United States in multiple theaters by encouraging or not getting in the way of, of some of their allies being the Houthis, Hezbollah, and the, and the militias in Iraq. And that's what we've seen continue since October 7th. And obviously on the other side, the Israeli-American side, we also haven't really seen any de-escalation. Israel has continued its attack in Gaza, has continued to engage with Hezbollah on the northern front. And the U.S. seems to be just responding militarily to the Houthis and to the Iraqi militia. So essentially, since October 7th, we haven't really seen a very serious and comprehensive attempt 
for diplomacy, which would be the opposite of conflict. And that's why my view is that we've mostly seen escalation since October 7, albeit limited and calculated. Do opportunities for diplomacy even exist right now to get Iran and the United States on a de-escalatory path? Yes, I think opportunities have existed even before October 7th. Well, first in the form of nuclear negotiations, since the Biden administration came into office, they actually had promised, the president himself had promised he would return to the nuclear deal. I don't think they exhausted the diplomatic channel enough to make that happen. And then they delayed and there was a government change in Iran and then things got much harder. So that didn't really yield any results except for a very limited success in the form of the prisoner swap and someone blocking Iranian assets, which was just one small sign, proof basically that diplomacy can work. But beyond that, I don't think there has been enough serious attempt at diplomacy even before October 7th. And then since October 7th, there have been, you know, many U.S. allies or non-allies, Qataris, the Omanis, others who still continue to offer mediation and trying to open or or exhaust the path to diplomacy. But I don't think that has happened enough because I don't think the Israeli side is interested in using this diplomatic path. And I don't think the United States, the Biden administration has pressured the Israelis enough or used their immense leverage over Israel to sort of pressure them to go down the diplomatic path. So I think the Israelis are set on destroying Hamas and this collective punishment essentially of Gaza and the US although they they have been telling them behind the scenes they have made some small successes here and there but I don't think they've used their leverage enough to exhaust that diplomatic path to bring a ceasefire to the conflict to release the hostages the Israeli hostages that continue to be held by Hamas and essentially to lower the temperature in these other theaters. The response to the Houthis have just been attacks, which the Houthis actually don't care about. They've welcomed and they've said that they're going to continue their attacks on the ships. The response to the Iraqi militias also has been military strikes and the conflict with Hezbollah in the northern front has also continued. So the last time you and I spoke a couple of years ago, Iran was in the midst of really substantial protest movement led mostly by women, but including a broad sector of society. The kind of regime cracked down, it seems, pretty effectively against that movement. What are some of the kind of domestic political pressures that were kind of informing Iranian domestic politics prior to October 7th? Well, Iran had been dealing with months of nationwide anti-government protests that were kicked off with the death in custody of this young Kurdish woman, Mahsa Amini, last year. And essentially, protests erupted across the country in many cities and towns and lasted for many months. The state used a lot of violence and essentially brought down the iron fist to try to crack down on the protesters. As human rights organizations have documented, hundreds of protesters were killed. 
thousands were arrested, some were even executed, put on the death row, and they were dealing with a very serious legitimacy crisis that still continues to this day because essentially the grievances of these protesters has not really been answered by the state, political, economic, social grievances. And so that's the internal dynamic, essentially a big portion of the society specifically the younger generation, going against the state, the central government, and really risking their lives or many other aspects staying on the streets. So that's something that the Iranian state has been dealing with internally, domestically. And in a way, the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza, the situation since October 7th, has benefited the Iranian state because it removed that internal dissent inside Iran and the human rights abuses of the government. It removed it from the headlines. They really were leading headlines when the protests first started last year. There was a lot of attention on what the protesters were asking for, on the crackdown of the government being highlighted. That's all gone. You don't hear anything about Iran's internal dissent pretty much in world media, in global media sort of the same thing that's happened to Ukraine, to the Russia-Ukraine situation, which has really been removed from the top headlines since October 7th. So in that sense, the Iranian government is benefiting. There's no more attention, no more focus on that dissent, on how they're abusing the rights of their own citizens, of the protesters. To your point about like the domestic political mood, I mean, is there like a rally around the flag kind of effect happening now within voices who previously had been protesting the regime, but are now, you know, maybe generally supportive of the regime because of what's happening in Israel? Or alternatively, are you seeing like disgruntlement among a lot of Iranians because here you have Iran supporting all of these factions and broad the axis of resistance, yet there's no sort of money or support for domestic political reforms or, or economic support at home? Well, it's a mix. I would say among that dissenting part of the society, which is actually many, there isn't really much support or sympathy for Iran's long-term regional policy and the way the alliances and the animosities that they've shaped in their policy over the years. Within the political class, I would say it's harder now to criticize that foreign policy, especially since Iran is not directly engaged in this conflict, but there have been assassinations of Iranian forces outside of Iran in Syria. There have been operations inside the country. There was actually a very deadly, almost unprecedented terrorist attack inside Iran, many civilians killed. And so any form of dissent, any form of disagreement or criticism of the government's policy, via domestic and especially foreign policy, regional policy and foreign policy is now met with much more scrutiny and essentially will be painted as treason because the government thinks that their national security and the country's sovereignty and safety is under threat. So as conflict spreads and expands in the region, and Iran is one way or the other involved in that, any form of internal dissent and disagreements, particularly with that policy, is just going to be harder and more costly in the country. 
lastly, is there like an aspect to Iran's conduct right now in the region or debates within Iran that you think Western media right now is largely overlooking that it would be important to know to understand why Iran is doing what it's doing right now? In Iran, essentially, they see this and this coalition of their allies, the state, non-state actors, as part of their strategic death. They see the multiple conflicts in theaters as a way of raising the cost for Israel, for the United States and Iraq, essentially trying to push the United States to leave Iraq, to eventually leave the region. These are all long-term goals for Iran. But at the same time, I don't think we're hearing enough about the connection of these multiple theaters. And I think sometimes people just think the Red Sea skirmishes are just their own independent thing. And I even have journalists and media coming to me with the question, who are the Houthis and why are they attacking ships? As if the Gaza situation is completely separate. I think one thing we need to understand is that, yes, these are independent conflicts, but at the same time, they're all tied back what's happening in Gaza to the Israel-Hamas war. These forces and these groups and these militias and state non-state actors, they see themselves as allies of Hamas and they see themselves essentially raising the cost for the other side. And so therefore, one way to stop the escalation or the expansion of the conflict is to try to work on the ceasefire in Gaza. I don't think we're hearing enough of that connection. And I don't think the Western audience understands enough of that, that in order to stop the attacks in the Red Sea, you need to look back at Gaza. In order to stop the confrontation with Hezbollah or the attacks by Hezbollah, you need to look back at Gaza. That's one connection that is missing in a lot of the reporting. Nagar, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.